Today's episode is brought to you by Ruth Gilligan's The Butcher's Blessing, an unforgettable thriller that Evie Wilde calls completely gripping. Set in the gothic wilds of Ireland, the novel tells the story of the butchers, eight fabled men who roam from farm to farm, enacting ancient methods of cattle slaughter, offering a simmering glimpse into the modern tensions that surround these men and their families. Says Colin McCann, Gilligan braids beauty and brutality together in a seamless literary thriller with plot twists worthy of Tana French and language reminiscent of Thea Obrecht. The young Irish writer has crafted a story that is dark, wild, mythic, unsuspecting, and absolutely riveting. The Butcher's Blessing is out now from Tin House. Today's episode of Tin House Live was recorded as part of the 2020 Tin House Summer Writers Workshop, a conversation between Shayla Lawson and Hanif Abdurraqib that you could say is about writing pop culture, but really is about so much more. Hanif has been a past guest of Between the Covers for his latest poetry collection, A Fortune for Your Disaster. So if you haven't heard that episode, you should go check that one out after this. It too, much like this conversation, uses popular culture icons from Marvin Gaye to the Rolling Stones to the Christopher Nolan film The Prestige as a way into questions about the commodification of black pain and about black performance and its cost on the performer. His next book coming out in March is A Little Devil in America, Notes in Praise of Black Performance. And like his poetry collection and his past essay collections, his book is a place, a space in which race, history, culture, and entertainment collide. I'm not sure, but I think this is Shayla Lawson's first time as part of the Tin House Writers Workshop. She's the author of three poetry collections, including I Think I'm Ready to See Frank Ocean, which they discussed during this conversation, a book that pays homage to Frank Ocean, but also builds on historicized representations of his career as a way to look at Black American legibility in America. Most recently, she's the author of the essay collection, This is Major, Notes on Diana Ross, Dark Girls, and Being Dope, which has received starred reviews all over the place and praise from everyone from Jericho Brown to Ocean Vong. She's also the curator of the Tenderness Project with poet Ross Gay, and which you can join at tendernesses.com. Thank you to everyone who's become supporters of Between the Covers during this fall fundraising season to get things on solid footing going forward, and to those who've continued to be supporters over the years. For those curious what it is all about, $1 an episode or $24 a year is the entry level to join a community of listener supporters who's helping me shape the future of the show, of who to invite, and to receive resource-rich emails with each episode that talk about the discoveries I made during my preparation for a given conversation and which provide links to the most noteworthy writing, audio, and videos that I either use to prepare or that would make great follow-ups to explore after listening to a given episode of the show. But there are a ton of other things, from becoming a Tin House Early Reader 
receiving 12 books over the course of a year, months before the general public, to getting access to the bonus audio archive where guests of the show do something oblique to the main conversation. Everything from Jenny Ophel reading Mary Rufel to Nikki Finney reading from the diaries of Lorraine Hansberry. Before I hand it over to Hanif and Shayla, I'll just mention one new thing that is available since the last time we talked. A gesture from Nikki Finney that about stopped my heart, particularly when I saw and held what she sent me. She has a limited edition collector's item called The Sweet Box of Words. In her own words about the project, she talks about how she has always been partial to handmade things. As an example, 25 years ago, with her second book, Rice, she hand-sewed on a Singer sewing machine 2,000 tiny rice bags to give out with that book. In the same spirit of something made by hand and with personal care, 25 years later, she has made something much more remarkable, something that involved more people, including a book conservationist, and took a year to make a sweet box of words, which collects and reimagines Nikki's books, Rice, The World is Round, and Head Off and Split, not only as sacred poetry, but as sacred physical objects. Everything from the drop spine box, handmade and handcrafted, to the fabric for the cover on the outside, to the lining on the inside, to the photographs of her mother and great-grandmother, and of Nikki herself on each respective volume, to her hand-drawn signature on the front of each orange box, has been done with obvious attention and care. So one day, three of these sweet boxes of words showed up at my door, and hopefully they will find sweet homes with three of you. You can find out about any or all of these things at patreon.com slash between the covers. And now, without further ado, I'll hand it over to Hanif Abdurraqib and Shayla Lawson for their amazing conversation about writing pop culture and so much more. Hey, it's so, (laughs) the funniest part of these things, um, I think the uh, virtual stuff is that normally when you get introduced, you like come out from behind, you know, you're like coming onto a stage and now it's just like you awkwardly pop your camera on. (laughs) I'm trying not to be too close or too awkward when it actually turns on. You know, you try to hit the button for the distance, <laughs> not just like your nostrils inside of it. Yeah. Thank you, Shayla, for doing this. First off, congrats on This Is Major. Okay, uh, thank you. Which I, I love a lot. And um, before we were, like when we were quote unquote backstage, we were talking about um, Kentucky and Ohio's proximity. We were, we're essentially neighbors. A thing I joke about sometimes is that because I love Ohio so much, I joke that anyone who has any like, even like four to five hour proximity to Ohio is pretty much an Ohioan. So in my heart, you are an Ohioan. I, you know, I'll take it. You know, I, especially with, you know, Tony Morrison's from Ohio. So I'm a big fan. Um, I spent a lot of time in Ohio because Ohio was like where we would go to do cool shit. You know, it was the closest thing we had to Atlanta until Louisville picked up. So yeah, Cleveland going to concerts. Oh, I thought you were saying Cincinnati was the closest thing you had to Atlanta. I was about to be like, sheesh. Actually, for us, like, like Cleveland was the closest thing we had to Atlanta. It was either, like, Cleveland or Atlanta if we were going to try and go to a Black concert. Yeah. 
No, this yeah, Cleveland's the closest thing I have to Atlanta, and I, you know, what I mean? like I still, um, it's yeah. I I wanted well, I guess the goal was to talk about pop culture and writing pop culture and the the relationship of writing pop culture, but I really wanted to commend you on this is major, particularly for um, the entry, not the introduction. The introduction is wonderful too, but at the beginning of this is major, there's that public service announcement piece. Uh -huh. that, really uh situates us in the book really brilliantly and boastfully and it's full of bravado um and it just like really sparked me to life and set me up in a way where i i could receive the book the way i believe it was intended to be received mm -hmm. and so i wanted to, to just ask you about like structure and um choice in in nonfiction because as poets i think that we think about this, or I think about it all the time. I think about structure and form and placement and things like that. But, um, you know, This Is Major was, was sequenced so well um, and sequenced so thoughtfully. And before we kind of like meander into popular culture, I was wondering if you could talk about, about the structuring of the book. Yeah, so the public service announcement was initially the introduction to the book. My editors came back and they said that they felt the book needed some kind of academic um, and some kind of academic explanation to give it context. Um, and I was like, well, I'm not going to do that. So I wrote the introductory essay, which is about my childhood and using that as a conceit with which to talk about why I wrote the book, as opposed to creating a didactic explanation of why the book is here. Um, but it was, it was, it's kind of, the poem is kind of the you know like the Spike Lee sucker punch introduction to a scene that it's it's very imagistic and it's very hyperbolic and it's meant to be big and musical um, as a tribute to the culture that I'm writing about, which has contributed so much to this world that we look at when it comes to um, just everything that's important to us, style and sound. Um, and the wavelengths that get us moving and making us feel good. And I wanted the poem to really encapsulate that, but talk about things that um, people might not necessarily associate with where that movement came from, which is a lot of the work of Black women and femme. Right. And so throughout the book, a lot of structuring it revolved around how prepared the audience was to receive different parts of the story. So it's meant to the, the structure is meant to work pedagogically so that each chapter kind of builds on your understanding in a way in which you're ready to receive the next bit of information. Um, and yeah, that's a lot of, you know, so halfway through the book, for instance, there's a narrative arc in which I create a timeline, which goes through everything that's in the book forward and backward um, in terms of the racial implications of being black and how that has shifted um, from the first half of the book to the second, and you have in the midway point uh, a timeline that, that is built and you know, structured um, as a chart, but it's a poem that's explaining that in terms of definitions of Blackness and how Black has been um, creating all these euphemistic terms that have been used like ghetto or hood um, to try to describe who we are. And the book also culminates in a poem. So the, la the title of the last poem is, and in case, just in case you don't know who I am, I am. And it's another, um, you know, 
really excited vitriol of, of names and calling out people, you know, shouting out all of the people who I couldn't have written the book without. Um, which is always hard because then, you know, every, every round of edits, I was like, oh shoot, I forgot this person, or I forgot this person. You know, like I could never be done with putting all yeah. the names in the book. And that's, um, yeah, that's a lot of, I think, structure, what's happening. Yeah, I think about, I thought about that at the end and about, um, though I know he's a, <laughs> well, I think he's always been a polarizing figure, but I think he is polarizing for different reasons now. Um, Jay Cole at the end of uh, Forest Hills Drive, where mm -hmm. the outro is just him like audibly thanking everyone, you know, yeah. where he's just kind of like, he, there's this beat that's just playing out for like seven or eight minutes while he's cycling through all the people he's trying to thank. And then the crescendo is him remembering to thank his mom like five minutes in and shouting like mama really loud and it's just really it's kind of beautiful and yeah I, which i also do in the poem like not not right. yeah. reference to jay cole but there's a like, shout out to my mom that's, I, yeah so reading that made me think wholeheartedly of that and how every every piece and praise of our people should perhaps be an auto like should have an audible component an yeah. audio component where we are because, you know, it's so easy to forget the ones we love, no matter how large we love them. And um, at least when I'm writing, I'm always like, gosh, who am I forgetting? But when I'm speaking out loud, it's like, oh, this person, it's like a chain, right? A chain of affection. Um, so much of our culture is oral anyway, um, whether it be the music or the storytelling or how we manage to record history. Um, mm -hmm. One of the reasons why in Western culture, it's so hard to find strong documentation for our existence and the ways that we have contributed is because of the fact that um, we are such a, a largely oral um, tradition, the idea of passing things down by talking about them. And I love that call and response culture. I think covers are a derivation of that, you know, translating songs into different versions. So there are definitely a lot of uh, controversial figures that I stole from <laughs> in order to write that, you know, people who are good at sound, like, um, it doesn't necessarily look like it, but the final essay, the one that comes before the poem, uh, Young Dristin and Back, Black, which is about Nina Simone, I lifted the structure from um, Dave Chappelle's joke about O.J. Simpson. Oh, yeah. You know how he laces that in one yeah. of his comedy shows, the first time I saw O.J. Simpson. So I did that. I, I watched that a few times because I thought it was a really successful way to build a narrative arc. Um, and that's how I built out the Nina Simone essay, for instance. Yeah, I think, too. So I was going to talk to you about covering and borrowing, and structurally especially. So I'm glad you said that, particularly about comedy, because I think that um, borrowing from comedy or stand-up performances is a tool um, that I'm seeing more and more in writers and in the sampling of music. Like Chance the Rapper had that um, single, or well, I guess it couldn't have been a single because it couldn't have played on the radio due to its profanity, where he like just sampled a loop of Jamie Foxx singing the words fuck you over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. And in my, like I have a new book of nonfiction coming out next year and in it, um, it circles around the um the first time bernie mac performed a deaf comedy jam where he came out and just kept you know like i ain't scared of you motherfuckers thing and how that repetition the repetition of the language um built up like worked the audience into kind of a frenzy right how that repetition was rhythmic enough and funny enough 
to kind of push people to the edge of the ecstatic and how um, we see that in music. We see that in, in choruses. We see it in Little Richard who, um, you know, was notorious, at least in his early work, for pushing himself to the edge of language until there was no light, like no language left. Mm -hmm. And then he would just wring what he could out of sounds, like a cluster of sounds, a lot, bubble loop, all that. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was, I was, um, and I'm, I really want to talk about Frank Ocean with you, but, but before I get to Frank Ocean, <laughs> um, I was interested in how you find yourself um, borrowing from forms and artists and structures that are not poets or not writers at all. Well, that are not like nonfiction writers or poets. Um, well, I come, from a, I come from a design background. Um, I studied a lot of stuff that weren't art. Mm -hmm. I mean, that weren't um, writing as an art form. Um, so I studied painting and drawing, studied dance for a while. Um, I go in and out of doing circus art stuff. Um, and so in addition to writing, I think I work from a pretty wide lexicon of things that are happening. I, I don't know, I, like, for some reason I keep going back to like the Bernie Mac thing. And I think the other part of that story that's funny to me, if I remember it correctly, is that Bernie Mac did that because he just watched Bill Bellamy ball. Yeah, he watched Bill Bellamy get booed off stage. Yeah, and so his way of preventing that from happening to himself was to just start with something big and bombastic. Um, and I think I'm always looking for the people who um, just go to the highest place that they can first. They get into the essential instead of working around things. And I think sometimes um, poets talk about starting in the essential when it comes to time, but they're often talking around an object, they're trying to describe it, they're trying to build a world around it. And because of coming from an architecture background, my job is to see through something, uh, so to build a room. So I write a lot in a three-dimensional context. And I think that comics use a three-dimensional space in order to write because they're so concerned with time and a very specific temporal relationship to the audience that we don't always have to think about if we're a poet, you know, with a poet, poem, like, or when are we concerned about it being read? Like, um, it doesn't have to be now. It doesn't have to be immediate. It doesn't have to be discursive in a way of trying to fight off <laughs> an audience that doesn't want to listen to you. And I love the idea of thinking about those things when it comes to prose, because sometimes we can get into, um, this trap of writing to ourselves, which isn't the same as writing for ourselves. With writing to ourselves, I think especially when we look at academia, a lot of academics are saying some really bomb-ass stuff, but it's really hard to hear them because they're writing so inward. And I really want to see something that is doing that call and response action, that is, is really engaged with the audience and that you can move through quickly even though, you know, if we're looking at This Is Major, for instance, even though it's a long book, I think it's quicker to move through than Frank Ocean. I think everybody see Frank Ocean as a poetry collection because I intentionally wrote it with a level of high linguistic engagement. So thinking about the sound that works within the structure of music and that works within the structure of stand-up and how do I keep, I maintain that sound 
So I looked at a lot of people who I think do that really well. Um, like with, for color girls, I was looking at Tony K. Bambara. Um, when I was writing um, interracial dating, I thought about uh, Top Dog Underdog and Susan Laurie Parks. Love Susan Laurie um, Parks. Yeah, you know, people who are really great at speed, like people who are really, really great at like, like condensing a lot of information in something that's really fast, you know? And so there are definitely storytellers out there who are doing it in prose formats, um, but they aren't necessarily everybody's go-tos in terms of learning that kind of form. That was a lot of fun for me is to resurrect um, some black women artists that I don't see people use as a reference as much. linguistically or stylistically so first of all i wanna i love susan laurie parks i love susan laurie parks a great deal there are people and she's from our you know ohio yeah. she is she is she's, from a, she's kind of an ohioan yeah. <laughs> um but you know what's funny and i i'm someone who i think because of the life you know i because i've spent a portion of my life like interviewing musicians and folks like that I'm kind of I've built a stoicism towards uh you know quote-unquote fame or whatever but I think if I were to meet Susan Laurie Parks in real life I would have a hard time I have a very hard time (laughs) also I was thinking of Susan Laurie Parks recently because um and this is I would like to preface for folks watching who perhaps love Broadway and it's uh rap music this is not a slight at, at all but you know, people, when I, when I see like people talking about how hip hop has arrived on Broadway finally and all that, I think about these old interview I saw with Susan Lee Parks talked about when Top Dog Underdog hit Broadway and all the black people came and she would talk about how um, people were coming late and like not turning their phones off because they didn't understand the like decorum of Broadway, right? They were yeah, like- the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the show said, you know, this says it's going to start at eight, so I'm going to show up at 8.15. I'm going to miss, I'm gonna miss the trailers, you know? Yeah. And, and I, I was like that, in Top Dog Underdog, I mean, you know, like came out in that era where it's like baggy jeans and like oversized shirts. And um, to me, I don't think, in praise of Susan Lee Parks, I want to say that I don't think um, bringing hip hop to a space is just mapping the music onto an institution. I think bringing hip hop to a space is ca- crafting something for your people and being like, come as you are. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. so I, I, I don't know. I'm glad you brought Susan Laurie Parks into the space. Mm-hmm. Um, you're, I, I love- Wanda Coleman as well. Like a lot, like the call and response phone is really like very much a nod to Wanda Coleman. Um, you know, I think, yeah, I think about Nikki Giovanni and Sonia Sanchez, like, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Did you know, she- I like that thing. <laughs> I wanted to talk about the Frank Ocean project a little bit because I wanted to talk about Obsession, which, um, you know, I, I, I see so many writers get chased off of their obsessions because they, they fear being repetitive. But I think the true mark of an obsession is that um, your curiosity is going to lead you to some new doorways in and new doorways out, um, or at least will lead you to avenues where you will not fall into the trap of repetition even if you are repeating yourself through through an obsession with the subject. Um, so why Frank Ocean, I suppose, and where are you at now with that particular interest? I think it was really less Frank Ocean and more what 
he was doing and feeling like nobody was archiving how important the moment was in terms of black masculinity and the juxtaposition between him and the Black Lives Matter movement. So the book for me is not about Frank Ocean, it's about the Black Lives Matter movement and about someone, because even, so back in 2012 is when I started working on the book. Uh, 2012 was when um, I found, I'm gonna mess up these dates, because was Channel Orange 2013 or was it 2012? I think Channel Orange is 2013. It's 2013, wasn't it? Yeah. Because, um, okay, so what I found first, I was listening to Odd Future. Um, so 2012 was when I found him listening to Odd Future. And that track, Girl, mm. uh, especially the video where he plays both the father and the bad boyfriend. Um, there was something about that character that I felt was very compelling, and I was really interested in knowing who he was. So mostly it was just kind of spotty, because I didn't find... Um, I don't, me? No, no, no. I was listening to Nostalgia Ultra because I'm thinking about like how I decided to organize it in the book versus like what was my experience. I did find Nostalgia Ultra eventually because of Odd Future. And it was 2013, around the time that George Zinnerman was let go, that Frank Ocean wrote Channel, uh, brought Channel Orange, came out in the liner notes, um, presented this wholeness around what a black person and what black masculinity could be in a time in which we were being very greatly pigeonholed and suffering from the rise of the first black president. And I thought that that was really significant. And I also liked that the thing that was happening with what he was offering us of himself was that it was an archive of our humanity and not the ways that we are acted against uh, the violence that's imposed upon us. And I thought that that was important too. So I did the Frank Ocean project. I've concentrated on Frank Ocean because metaphorically he fits so well into the millennial structure. He was a Katrina survivor. Mm -hmm. He lost the entire catalog, an entire catalog of his music in Louisiana. He lived in the Superdome. Um, he moved out to LA. You know, he did, he's, uh, he's from the South. Like there's so much about it that felt very, akin to not only my story, but just kind of the story of millennial culture. And um, I think I did, even before he said it in Blonde, feel these, yeah, because I was talking about it even before Blonde came out and he said, R.I.P. Trayvon, and he looked just like me. Um, early on when, when I, in early, earlier versions of the book, like as early as like, you know, 2013, 2014, I thought of the book as being what if Frank Ocean was Trayvon Martin's chance at life? Like, what would it look like if little boys got to live? Um, so I wanted to do a pretty expansive story of Black masculinity. And so This Is Major was me looking at the same thing, but from the lens of Black womanhood. Um, what would happen if we allowed Black girls to be Black girls? And when I think of Black girlhood, I think of that as um, something that traverses gender. The idea that we try to erase Black femininity and Black childhood in these very particular ways uh, to build this structure in which um, Blackness, and I think particularly in juxtaposition to other kinds of femininity, that, that Black girlhood is about work or it's about being, about being a woman. You know, even um, people in our own community are very quick to call uh, Black girls um, 
women when, when they're children. And so the, I think what it is for me is just where the obsession is directed. I try not to be obsessed with people. I try to be obsessed with what it is that draws me to them. Um, so I'm a Frank Ocean fan, but not in a way where like the project was an excessive, like an obsessive recounting of Frank Ocean because I was really interested in Frank Ocean. Frank Ocean deserves his own life and he deserves his own space. And I think that sometimes, you know, when people take on these projects, they start imbuing more information than they can possibly know about the person because, um, because really they're trying to tell the story of themselves. You know, I didn't even say that in the book, in my poem about Siegfried. It's like, of course, anytime I'm, I'm I, whenever I say ocean, I'm talking about myself. Right, right. How every time you come around, I'm never the same woman. And I think that um, that's a really important part of doing a project that is obsessive or that's focused or that has one central loci, especially if that loci is a person. Um, Frank Ocean was easy for me to take on and feel comfortable with because Frank Ocean is a pseudonym. So I'm not trying to build this story in which like I'm saying who he is. I'm looking at the name and I'm looking at why he took that on, particularly like as a Katrina survivor, what it means to take on the name Ocean. And I love that he even acknowledges that in, um, in the song Oceans that he did with Jay-Z and a bunch of other people, I think it's on the Magna Carta album where he talks about this water is my family, this water is my blood, um, this water is my story, this water knows it all. Um, and I, I just feel like, you know, okay, this is, this is a person who is so incredibly self-aware about the choices that they're making. Um, and I wanted to do an homage to that. And similarly, and this is major, it's a bigger book, so I chose more people to kind of cover, but post, posting Diana Ross as a central figure, like originally the book was going to very much be, um, it was, the original title was going to be Live Tonight with Diana Ross, which comes from a picture that's in the Ruben Affendor series, a Fondador series where she uh, wears the afro and she's holding a rib and she's in Mississippi. Is it, let me think. In, why can't I? It's not Mississippi. It's, is it Alabama? I can't think. Now. Alabama. That, it's like, Alabama. Where, yeah, but it's her, like it's, um, it's her ancestral home. So it's like where her grandparents used to run a church and she would go down there live as most people do coming from Detroit, you know, or anywhere above South during, during the summer. Um, and that was going to, it, it still is. Um, it, it's a through, it's a through way in the book. It's just Diana Ross felt a little bit more precarious to take on in that way because her name is her name and not hyperbolic. Um, so even in writing the essay, I, um, I actually re I, I reached out to her at a certain point about using the photograph um, of her entering a rib, and um, her and her manager were extremely polite to me. They were lovely people, and I had sent them the essay, and I looked at the essay, and after that, I was like, oh, I have to re rewrite this entire thing because I just sent Diana Ross this picture of her that like I basically scrawled out in crayon. It was like, look, you know, <laughs> so proud of myself. And I was like, I can do, I can do better. She does better, you know? So I, I love the fact that that brought me to a higher calling, a higher level of trying to achieve something. I hope the end result is something that 
she feels does her justice. But again, I, I looked at it and I had to turn the focus more towards a lens that was clear that I am using her as a conceit in which to talk about this space that I also inhabit and not as a critique of her. There, you know, there is writing that does that, you know, your writing, for instance. And I think with, you know, go ahead and rain, it, it goes in and out of that experience of when you're critiquing the work of a set of artists versus when you are talking about enjoying that artist as a fan, enjoying their work, enjoying their music. And my project was much more of the latter than the former. So that's how I approached SZA and Nina Simone and Diana Ross, who all specifically have chapters in major. Isn't that also a way, at least for me, it feels like a way to circumvent this idea? Like I think when I first started writing poems, for example, and I would make pop culture references in my poems, I feel like folks with perhaps more limited imaginations will always be like, well, what are you going to do in a year? Like no one's going to remember this reference in a year. But I think what is not being seen or acknowledged is the fact that the, the pop culture reference is pretty much a vehicle back to the self or a vehicle towards some other revelation that um, will ideally perhaps make the, the pop culture figure or reference point kind of perfunctory. Um, do you find that in your approach or do you think that there has to be a healthy centering of the popular culture obsession in order to get to where you want to go? I, I don't agree with the statement that that person is making because I think it's rooted in a very particular way of looking at culture that we continue to be fed that isn't honest. What they're saying when they say nobody will remember that in a year is that I can't sell it to you in a year. Yeah. Um, and that is a very um, global northern, <laughs> westernized, imperialist, white supremacist way of looking at what culture is. That culture has to be something that can be commodified and can be sold to you. Um, that's not what happens after we produce things. Um, that's when they live in that space of call and response in this time loop that is a spiral or that is recursive. Um, which is much more akin to how um, globally Southern or Eastern, you know, or African cultures, however we want to talk about them, look at time. Um, and art has always been a practice that works that way. Um, because, you, you know, we're, we're all like, we're all over right now. But if I said, we don't need the water, like, you know, I would imagine <laughs> everybody at home is just like, let yeah. them, <laughs> you know, yeah, why? It's not, how, it's not that we don't remember, you know, like we, we actually, we were, we're holding it in our bodies at that point. And I think that is, you know, when I talk about coming out of all these different traditions of working as an artist, um, that's what I'm looking for is where it lives in our body, mm -hmm. um, as opposed to whether or not I'm gonna write that line that somebody is going to remember in a year. I, you know, I'm not the writer that people go to for one-liners, you know, or bangers, because that's, I write an atmosphere. Um, I write something that's meant to, to live in our bodies, because that's where it lives first for me. Um, so I don't worry too much about that because I find that my work works better for people in longevity. So I like when Erica Badu got up, uh, 
you know, time right now. Because I see that somebody mentioned General Orange was 2012. And that's, you know, that's significant because I was like, I feel like I went Channel Orange Nostalgia Ultra and then came back to Channel Orange. Yeah. And, and that was, the, you know, when I came back to Channel Orange with the Jerry Zimmerman verdict, that was the point where I decided, you know, I got to write this book. Uh, but that said, like, the reason why I bring this up in relation to time is uh, Erica Badu, one year at Afropunk, and I can't remember, it must have been two years ago. Because um, I can't remember, it's so hard to know what time is anymore, because I'm like, there is no 2020 Afropunk. And I don't, it was like 2018 to 2019. Um, but I love that she said that she, you know, she wrote Baduism when she was pregnant with seven, her, her child with Andre 3000, and she wrote Baduism for Gen Z. Um, she didn't expect people to get, she expected people to like it. She hoped people were going to like it, but she wrote it thinking about the future. And I think if you are um, black and femme, and I, you know, I can only speak from this particular context, like most of us are always writing for the future because nobody's checking for us now. <laughs> so we always have to be looking at the idea that this is going to catch on. Like when Jamaica Kincaid wrote Girl, she was not writing for people that were ready to read it. They thought it was interesting, but they didn't really understand what it was that she was doing and what it meant to change up the form. But boom, like, look at what we're doing now. Like pretty much everybody is trying to experiment with that, um, that crossover in form. And when I think about um, Audre Lorde and Musso Clifton and Alice Walker, like these were all writers who wrote in every form. Nowadays, we try to talk about that as if when, you know, when people see like you and me and Ocean and Kathy Park Hong and it's, and they're like, oh, well, poets are trying to do nonfiction now or nonfiction people are, you know, or in Eve, like, you know, and it's like, no, like <laughs> black women have always had to do this. Like this is, this has been the structure that we have always had to tell a story because we were looking at not these divisions of places that were not open to us. So uh, I think a lot of this division has to do with the academy and what they can sell to us, that they can only sell us silos. So they have to corral us so that they can sell us this overly priced education in a thing that is intrinsic to us. And that, you know, don't get me wrong, I wouldn't be able to write the way that I do without an MFA education because my MFA I went to IU Bloomington and it was paid and I got three years to write. Nobody's going to give me three years to write and read um, and become the best editor of my work that I could at that particular time. So I needed that. I don't fault the Academy, but I do very much fault them for these delineations and this idea that when you step out of that, the first, one of the first things that you hear from the people that you respect in the Academy is like, oh, so you're not a serious poet. Or, oh, you're not serious about this and it's like, no, I'm serious about writing and I'm serious about living and I'm serious about doing those things in a way that's most healthy for me. And trying to push myself into a silo is not always going to be the most healthy um, just because that's where the awards are. That's the way that somebody is going to respect the form. So um, that was something that was really challenging for me um, in poetry when it came to the Frank Ocean book because in honor of him and the work that he does, I decided to do most of my performances with music. So they were, you know, like many concerts. 
And the way that most people translated that in the academy was as something that wasn't, that I didn't think of as strong enough poetry or something that wasn't strong enough poetry. And I'm like, no, 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 no. You don't understand how fucking hard it is <laughs> to figure out how to metrically fit a poem into an existing song and then learn to play it and then instruct an entire band on how to work with improvisation. <laughs> <laughs> when, you know, because we're, we're doing something that goes from syncopation to discordance, you know, like when you're working with a poem, you're reading a poem, like you go fast and slow, you're speeding up, you're slowing down. Bands are used to playing straight, like, you're, you know, unless you've got a jazz band, it's used to like that play with improvisation and scat, you know, thinking about the whole, um, you know, wop, wop, like the, that as a, you know, like as a derivation of scat, like unless you have people who are trained to play that kind of music, which most of us aren't because again, we're trained to manage music in a very westernized context. Yeah. Um, we had to do a lot of learning <laughs> and soul searching and relying on each other. And I'm also talking about poetry in a we, which is also something that we've lost. You know, we tend to think about poetry in this I now, and even though there is more of an emphasis on building collectives, there's not as much of an emphasis on collective art, on collaborative art. And these are things that we've lost uh, to a great detriment to what we can do as writers. But we have lost these things because it is easier to sell us these contests. It's easier to sell us these particular accolades that we're supposed to go after. It's easier to sell us these workshops, sorry. <laughs> if we think that all of this is built on the individual and what you have at your disposal and how much you're willing to put into your art. And I really think that those are things that have to be challenged and have to be re-examined. Um, so I just, I just feel like for you to be asked that question, it's, it's put in the, like, it's putting some, it's, you know, it's putting a healthy plant in bad soil. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think, and then I, I feel like we should go to questions. So I know people have a lot of questions, but I think too, um, I'm glad you said the thing about genre because anytime, you know, I, I grew up, uh, my mother was a writer. And so I grew up reading a lot of black women because she was reading a lot of black women. Um, and you know, that's just like what my household looked like. Um, and so anytime, you know, when I started getting asked questions about like how it's possible to write in two genres or that whole like kind of like, well, how are you doing this? Right. It felt to me like so odd. Like I remember the first time I got asked that, I kind of didn't know, you know, it's like, well, doesn't everyone, you know what I mean? <laughs> if you're conditioned to like read, um, particularly when it's your people, you know, like when, when I came up reading black women who were not just operating um, in different genres, but performing within different genres. Like you mentioned music, like we had musicians writing essays and poems and, you know, like playwrights. I mean, just people who were like pursuing um, whatever their creative hunger was and not really beholden to genre. Yeah. Uh, it made it seem very weird to me that anyone could ask that question of, of any writer. Like could ask the question of like, how are you doing this? So I think the better question is, I mean, if you're capable, how can you not, you know? And especially as I start to see, um, you know, I, as someone who organizes a bit, the, the, the central tenet that I have come to understand as a calming thing is that um, so many of us are building towards a future that genuinely cannot be seen or touched or felt. Like, I don't know. I am building toward a future that centers abolition, but I also cannot tell you 
what that looks like in a tangible way, right? Um, but I still have to build towards it because I know it is better than, I believe it to be better than what I have set in front of me now. And I think that's the other thing too about writing is that um, in time, whenever people are like, well, what if people don't get this reference, whatever the, that old bullshit. It's like, listen, I mean, I think that I am writing myself towards uh, a future that feels limitless, even if I can't explain in a tangible way what that future is. And that feels vital and important. So I'm glad you said that. And yeah. I, feel like, I feel like we should open up for questions. I don't know if Lance is running the questions. Lance, are you gone? No, no, I left as soon as Shayla said something about workshop, but. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, well, it's done. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, the Q&A uh, is there on the bottom. So people have questions that'll pop up there. And so you, you all can just pick which ones you want to answer. Any further thoughts on Frank Ocean's Endless? I'm pretty obsessed with it, but I haven't seen that much writing about it. Well, Jordan, I'm worried you haven't read my book. <laughs> I wrote an entire, like, I was the first person to publish an essay about Endless. I published it the morning after Endless came out in Salon. Um, so I'm going to find it and put it in the chat because I, I have read it. It came out at, what, um, midnight? I, I stayed up all night. I turned the essay into them at 7 a.m. And I went to bed. <laughs> and in the book, I have a lyric essay that relates um, Endless to the panopticon and the expectation of black performance, the expectation that we are supposed to create art on a time scale, um, that if we aren't relying on this time scale, that we're no longer relevant. Um, that and how it's tied to queerness and the, um, the black philosophical thought that all of uh, all of blackness is inherently queer because of the ways that our bodies have been reinterpreted, which I also like to remix because of the idea that there's always been an inherent fluidity in African culture. Like for instance, the Yoruba language does not, um, or it does not, I don't, I don't speak it, but does not or did not originally have um, gender pronouns. Um, and so when you think about things like that and then think about the time that we're in now and think about these things as recursive and not new, um, that we're returning to things as opposed to um, learning new things. Um, I, it, it centralizes the conversation of what's happening with Endless and what Frank Ocean is trying to build with the spiral differently. Um, so I think the essays, the lyric essay is worth reading. Uh, the Salon essay is shorter. It just does the work of like connecting social media uh, as a panopticon that Frank Ocean um, avoids and how he, you know, how he very, he, how he uses that space um, in a very targeted manner. And the lyric essay that's built out in the book uh, includes like Robert Reed Farr and Hortense Spillers and starts to look at that in terms of queerness and like this bigger lexicon. Cause I also, you know, you hadn't seen much about Endless. I have not seen very many people connect Frank Ocean to a legacy of black queer, queer writing and uh, black queer academia. And so that was another thing that I thought was important in looking at Endless is as an inherently black queer text. Um, another question, how do y'all negotiate your relationships with institutions and advocate for the lessening of the unnecessary humiliations that Shayla mentioned? What future, perhaps it's also unknowable, do you imagine for the interaction between by POC artists and institutions that claim them and claim to support them. I'll say real quick, I don't really have much of a relationship with many institutions. I 
I mean, one thing that's very well known about me and my history is that I did not go to college for writing. I, I didn't study writing. I, I didn't get an MFA. I came up through writing, um, you know, mostly on punk scenes and through punk zines and then through Poetry Slam and then um, in a lot of self-taught methods, which I don't think makes me any different or better than someone who's also operating in a mode now where, um, you know, institutions circle in many ways. Um, but I do think, at least for me, that um, that experience reshaped my priorities around what I need as a writer and how I can get the things I need as a writer and also make a way for other folks. Uh, you know, part of the thing with 68 to 05 was that I didn't want to wait around for, uh, you know, a place to an institution to hire me as an editor and then tell me like what music writing I could publish. You know, part of that was like, all right, if I've earned in, in, in some of my ethos is generally taking what institutions give me and then using it to turn away from institutions. Right. And so a big thing with 6805 was like, well, for whatever, for my writing, for my books or whatever, I've got enough money to start this site and pay people, like pay people to write about albums. They, I want to bring, bring back the blog era, kind of, but I want to pay people for that, right? Like I want to say you don't have to like get turned, if you want to write about this album from 1985 right now and no one else will do that for you, like every institution is shutting you out of that, I want to pay you for that and I want to read it because that's, you know, and so... Um, so much of my uh, turning away from institutions is largely because I'm excited about a world where selfishly, this is just me, selfishly, I'm excited about a world where I can read the shit I want to read when I want to read it, you know what I mean, from other people, not from me, like, and I, I'm excited about a world that, that ensures that I am not the only voice that people rely on for criticism or culture or anything, um, you know, Toni Morrison's immensely important to me. And the thing about Ms. Morrison that I feel like people don't talk about as much is her work as an editor. Her work is like it, her work as someone who rejected genius, aggressively rejected genius. I mean, like to call her a genius, she would correct you really quickly, you know, because she knew that to carry the label of genius and be black meant that there were, that meant scarcity was lurking, right? to claim the throne of black genius means that someone is invested in creating a hierarchy in which there are, we, we replicate the lie that there is not an abundant amount of black genius in the world. And uh, that there's not enough Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, and that there's like not enough room for all that genius to live. And, um, and so I, my, I'm trying to turn away from that always because scarcity is a number of things. The scarcity is also the enemy to accountability you know, because we cling to folks and we don't want to let them go and we don't want to critique and we don't want to, to maybe move on from them out of love. And so, um, so much of my work now is, is attempting to make sure that um, I am not the only voice in the room, even if I have to do that work myself, even if I have to like reach in my own pocket to reach into my own schedule and do it myself. Delali, are you talking, when you say institutions, are you talking about academia? Or are you talking, you know, I'm just curious about, yes, academia. I just, I wanted, I want a clarification just in terms of how I answer the question. Um, so for me, I have an MFA. I currently teach at Amherst College. I've taught in graduate programs uh, for MFAs in both fine art and creative writing. 
um, as an adjunct, but most of my career has been outside of academia. Um, I was an architect, um, I was a housewife, <laughs> um, and then I worked in marketing. So I worked for two companies in, um, in Portland in which I wrote specifically for Nike and Google. Um, and I was working in marketing when I finished um, both Pantone and the Frank Ocean book. Um, so I haven't spent much time directly in academia as a conscious choice. I have, however, made the point to go in and out because, um, because you're being told to go there. You're being told that this is the only way that you can be a writer. And if you don't have anybody who is a reflection of a way out of that, um, how do you learn that there is another option? So I went back, I'm, in multiple iterations, I've gone back to, to academia, gone back to education because of working in the outside world. So when I was in architecture, I always tell the story, um, I was black, I was building prisons. <laughs> and I learned that the way that they decide how to build jails in this country is based on fourth grade, third grade reading levels. So illiteracy rates determine where the most jails are put up. And that made me feel like, oh, they don't need people like me on this side, building stuff to contain us. They need people like me doing the education work on the other side to make sure that people are not, not learning to read because I don't think that that's the problem. I think the problem is that we have too many people who are not learning, who are not being read. Like we have too many teachers who don't know how to read their students. So I go back and forth into in and out of academia to try and take what knowledge I have gained from the outside world back in. So I'm at Amherst right now because it has one of the highest populations of students of color, uh, global students of color. Um, at the moment, they've got a lot of other problems, but <laughs> it was one of the things that I was really touched by in terms of their recruitment is they really tried to build a globally comprehensive campus. And one of the reasons why I wanted to be there is because we've lost a frame within the liberal arts of thinking that you can actually do writing as a job. You know, most of us want to, but then, um, you know, for instance, I, you know, I've watched Honey's career for years and always been really proud of you because of how you have managed to build these spaces for your work. Um, not all of us know how to do that. Um, and it's not a matter of you knew how, it's a matter of like some of us need to be taught um, that there is a way to make that happen. So I go into institutions to be that person um, because I spent so much of my time as a writer having to fund my work outside of that. Um, and I've never, I've never been funded by um, like, by like organizations or like, you know, by, I mean, like I wasn't one of the, um, award circuit writers, you know, who kind of went from fellowship to fellowship, because I think that's often what's set out for us when we graduate, um, whether that's from an MFA or from undergrad, this idea that if you're a real writer, people will continue to pay you to write. Um, and often, especially when you're first getting started, that's a lie. They will pay you, but they won't pay you enough to live off of. And so I have watched um, so many of my friends suffer egregiously and particularly you know when it comes to BIPOC writers and our health because like our mental health and our physical health um, often we have conditions that are not factored into um, what's provided for us as you know when, when we're handed over twenty thousand um, dollars 
um, and no health insurance. And that $20,000 also has to go and help pay, you know, like some of your mama's bills and like some, you know, and, and debt that you've incurred that there was nobody to help you out with. You've got $5,000 to live off of at, for a year. And then you go in debt after dealing with that fellowship and you try to get back into that cycle until you write something that provides you enough of an income or you find a teaching job um, that you can you know, hope to in your 40s or 50s break even. I looked at that cycle and I, I, I didn't want to participate in it. Um, not because I was better than it, you know, Lord knows if somebody wanted to, if somebody wanted to give me a rad clip or something, but like, I, they weren't checking for me. And that, they, they also think that, that that was important for me to understand that I wasn't going to be able to write my kind of work for them because I just do something that's a little bit different and it doesn't make it less valuable. Um, but I had to, I had to figure out ways to fund it myself. And I found that for me, um, as terrible as it was in a lot of other ways, um, mentally um trying to find spaces in which my writing could be valued like you know as a poet short form is great for social media advertising and uh for working you know and plus like uh social media advertising is, is really like a bipoc space we have taught them how to market to everybody else through the ways that we've used vine and twitter and instagram um and and now TikTok and um, that's a space that I really would love to see us buy back in the way that Anif is talking about, like not just going into these, um, these other institutions, you know, like the corporate world and working for these places that are using us, but what happens if we start going back to, to the blogs and, and monetize, you know, monetizing social media? I was, you know, we'll see what happens, but I was really excited when Black Planet was like, they're bringing back <laughs> you know, um, you know, recla reclaiming our time, reclaiming all the money that has been stolen from us, like all of the wit and the talent, um, beca because we've been just trying to find um, venues in which people listen to us and understand us for, uh, for our genius. Um, yeah, like, I think that's how I deal with, with academia, is I know that if I leave it entirely behind, I'll be leaving some of us behind, and that's not my goal. I don't want to get anywhere where y'all aren't there. Like, and so I try to go to the spaces where I can talk to, you know, talk to us and be like, you know what? This is great. We're going to take everything we can from this room <laughs> so that the next generation isn't going to have to sit here, like that they'll have somewhere else to go so that we can make these spaces where they have somewhere else to go and get work and somewhere else to go for the work to be appreciated. And we see, you know, we're, we're trying to build those spaces. We're trying, um, but it's just, it's going to take us a lot more because we just don't have the capital. Like not a lot of us aren't sitting with money waiting for us somewhere that we can use to build. Um, and, and so that's another part of why we end up in academia. It's, it's, a, it's a trap. It's, it's set up so that they can keep all of us talented tenthers, us smart BIPOC, people in spaces where we train their children, you know? So my friends and I talk about that all the time. Why is it that so many intelligent black people end up being either like lawyers or doctors or teachers, the spaces that have always been reserved to serve people? And how do we start to get out of that? Yeah, I, I will say before jumping to the third question too, that I think um, you're right in saying that like that is the way I came up is only because that's, that's kind of the way that I knew was available. Um, 
like I knew academia was not going to be for me, like financially at the time I got into writing poems. Um, I didn't have access and I kind of just had, and I think that has defined in a lot of ways that has defined my entire career as a writer when it comes to uh, my ability to say, one, my ability to say no, right? And my ability to remove myself, um, which I, I will say that removal is also a privilege, right? Like to be able to remove oneself is a privilege. Yeah. Um, but I, I think I got to a point where um, if I believed I could, then I had to do it, you yeah. know? And every time, I mean, this isn't to say I've had only bad experiences in academia, but I, I think that um, it is, there are parts of it that don't feel like I, I, I fit, not because I think I'm not smart or because I think I'm not thoughtful, but mostly because that is just, that was so outside of my vision for myself as a writer and a thinker when I first started writing. Mm -hmm. And so to um, arrive in those spaces now, years and years and years and years later, it's often like, oh, this whole world was like circling itself when I was completely unaware. So, yeah. In thinking about collaboration, collectivism, and art writing, can you art slash writing? Can you speak to how collaboration shows up in this book? So that would be your book, or in other projects of yours, or other people's projects you were thinking about, excited about that do this. Yeah. So Pantone was a book that I did as a collaboration with um, an apothecary company. So in addition to being a book about color, it had its own scent. Um, I think I'm ready to see Frank Ocean. I had a band called the Oceanographers that would tour with me when we had money. And when we didn't, it was just me and my little scent, Dolores. So we were collaborators. <laughs> um, this book, uh, this is major as a collaboration in that I interviewed a lot of Black people, um, if not directly, then indirectly. And those conversations are in the book. So the book is written very much in the style of um, you know, what would happen if you ran up on me and, and Hanif in a bar and we just kept talking and didn't shift our conversation. So, you know, we, you know, we included you in the conversation that you're allowed in it, but we didn't shift it to bring you up to speed to where we were, you know, what we were talking about before. We just kept talking. Um, so that is collaborative in nature as well. And if uh, you go on my social media, on my Instagram, I've done interviews called major conversations with about six of the people that are you know not famous just friends of mine that i talked to um whose stories have all shown up in the book and that's an ongoing project for me in terms of collaborative work that i'm excited about i'm really excited about how that's happening in the comic book space we've seen yona harvey um roxanne gay eve ewing um the tiny coats um all work collaboratively with visual artists and then with other writers um, to build out a world for us. Um, and I like thinking about um, our, our different colloquiums of writers. So these, they are collectives like the conversation and um, now like the dark noise collective. And, you know, um, I think about the ways that we're building out um, our own not talent agencies isn't the best word for it, but I think about like the work of Eliza and Tabia to build spaces in which you have collectives of poets that you can uh, contact. Um, what is Eloise's project called? Because Tabia uh, is Beotis and... Yeah. Costura Creative. 
Thank you, Astura Creative. You know, these are, these are collaborative spaces that are being run by artists to put you in contact with artists, artists that work together and often come and tour together um, to help us pool our resources. Like these are some of the places that we need to start because it's not, and then, you know, like another, one of my closest friends, uh, also named Shayla, no relation. I always love her in the other. Um, she and I wrote a whole collaborative book of poetry together that we're just kind of saving, you know, because black women are from the future, waiting until the future is ready for um, our, our Shayla Shayla project. Um, but what I'm most interested in right now in terms of collaborative efforts is how we can make those collaborative efforts structural and not just project-based. So how do we make institutions that allow us to continue to, um, to hold our profits within the community so that we can disperse them in ways that protect our ability to make art? Um. That was a great answer. I was trying to trying to look up the links to some of those things when Lance put Custora in the thing, in the chat. Um, I have nothing to add except for I'm doing a children's book for the first time with a, um, an illustrator named Ashley Evans about Aretha Franklin. And um, the process has been so fascinating to me because, you know, I, I really didn't do a lot. I wrote like 2,000 words total maybe. No, it was less than, it's like 1,200 words, right? Um, and those words just kind of sit there for a long time, a very long time. And then one day it's just like, here are some sketches that bring the words to life. And for me, it was the first time I felt like really overwhelmed with art um, that I couldn't fathom aligning with my own art. Um, just like immensely that someone could look at. So I'm, I'm fascinated, I'm more fascinated by that. I, I, I really love what happens when, um, artists look upon the work of other artists and are asked to create something new um, or create something in their own vein. And that is the kind of collaboration I'm most excited about. That's funny, yeah. sorry, <laughs> it just made me think, oh, I hadn't even thought about that. Um, yeah, right now um, we are close to signing a deal to develop this major into a television show. Um, so that's like another collaborative, which I hadn't really <laughs> thought, I'm like, oh yeah, 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 yeah. So, I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. I'm really working, looking forward to, to Dev and, you know, hopefully it being a show that people get to see, like it moving past pilot phase. It feels yeah. like a big time, so we'll see. Which is, yeah, I mean, that part's the hard part, right? Like, it's wild that so much goes into making a television show and then it like maybe never gets made even after so much goes into making it. Yeah, know? yeah. <laughs> but it's still part of the collaborative process to get it is. To pull that together and so it's been cool over uh covid to be new, meeting new people like meeting people who are creating stuff that's different than the medium that i'm used to working in. for real yeah i think that's the last question yeah uh, thanks for the and Eve, Shayla, thanks so much. That was such a great, I know we could spend the whole afternoon with, with you. I know the audience really appreciated um, just those fantastic answers um, to, the, to the questions. I am going to take director privilege here before I get you uh, off here. Uh, I'm just curious to know, uh, like, one album that you've been really going back to, um, you know, this last couple months. If it's something new, something old, just for my own, my own listening. <laughs> I'm not sure when I'll get a chance to talk to you both again, so... Yeah, for me, it is um, James Fauntleroy's Learning by Example, <laughs> particularly the song Fertilizer. I mean, yeah, Fertilizer, I'll take bullshit. 
That's all you got. Like, it, it feels very 2020. Like, <laughs> and just, you know, it feels, it feels very much like in line with my, my, my black girl praxis in general. I'm like, you know, I can work with it. Like, forget lemons and the lemonade. It is shit into bullshit. Do you put it on before like one of your events? Is that like your- Oh, I play it all the time. Intro music? <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna have to put it on as like the intro music, yeah. yeah. Um, so this is, I mean, I don't have one good answer to this in part. So I'm in my like office recording studio space and the records behind me are records that I'm like rotating through with the, mm -hmm. in. So right now that's like the first Illuminati Hotties record. Uh, City Girls period album, um, Tiger's Jaws Charmer, Evangeline by Amy Lou Harris in the Mary Clayton solo record. Um, but because of the way 68, I mean, I still listen to a lot of new stuff. There is an album by a group called Candace that came out earlier this summer that felt very summery and very beautiful. Uh, Nick Hakeem's new joint. Um, Phoebe Bridger's Punisher uh, has been good to listen to, though. Uh, sad to listen to and because of the way 68 to 05 is set up I'm like um, you know I'm kind of immersed in the playlist making and so any given day I'm like deep into you know I'm working on the 1986 playlist right now and so I'm just like deep into 1986 albums because making these playlists takes me like at least three days you know I block off like an hour and a half couple hours each day uh for three days to work on these playlists. And so I'm just like deep, deep into out the albums of 1986 right now. And Hanif, is, is, is there more pressure? Do you feel more nervous about putting a playlist out in the world or like a new poem? I mean, probably still a poem. Okay. I, I'm pretty confident in my playlist making abilities, one. And two, I, I think uh, a poem is still more, you know, I think like people can look at it with a little more uh, critical eyes than a playlist where it's just like a playlist you can hit shuffle and bounce around. But also, <laughs> You know, I, I don't I, I don't agonize over play. I get so excited about making a playlist when I feel like poems I still I still agonize a bit. But you know, sixty eight to oh five it's been it's been a real relief to have something uh with pretty low stakes to pour my time into. Well great. Well again, thanks so much. It was really uh Shayla, it was so good to spend an afternoon with you. I've been loving all the uh, the events. Uh, we went to link to uh, your website. Um, so I know um, shale has been doing a lot of stuff out there for, for the book release and has some more yeah. stuff coming up. Probably you get a link to my social because I'm not good at updating my website. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the website so much work. <laughs> I know you authors sometimes don't update your bios and we end up saying something like, I don't work there anymore. Right, yeah, 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 yeah. Who has the time, you know? <laughs> I guess it's a good lesson. So just always look on Twitter. Yeah. All right, well, have a great afternoon, everybody. Uh, Thanks, y'all. See you a little bit later. Take care. Bye. Today's program was not recorded at the studios of KBOO, but as part of the 2020 Tin House Summer Writers Workshop, and also at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. You can find more of Shayla Lawson's work at shaylalawson.com and more of Hanif Abdurraqib's work at abdurraqib.com. If you enjoyed today's program, consider supporting the fall fundraising campaign to get between the covers on solid footing going into 2021. 
You can do so and find out all the benefits of becoming a listener supporter at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so via PayPal at tinhouse.com slash support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team who keep the ship afloat. Elizabeth Tomeo, Lisa Ogie, and Spencer Rukti in the book division. Jacob Valla in the art department. Ishwina Cantor in publicity. And Lance Cleland, the director of the summer and winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes. Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning.